0: Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now, this week's message. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hanged by the Nazis in 1945 as a Lutheran pastor who was part of the resistance to the Nazi regime. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he says this. Suffering is about severing our ties to the world. It's an essential feature of the cross. Therefore, it should not be looked upon as something Christians do with a sense of pity, morbidity, or complaint. Sacrifice, yes but sacrifice with no pity attached. In our culture, for us, we look upon that as, oh, you poor thing. And of course, that's never going to be completely absent, but in a culture, in cultures around the world, people are facing this kind of thing every day with a completely different mindset than ours. To understand a little bit what Bonhoeffer is saying, Hebrews 13.3 will help us. It says, remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them, and those ill-treated as though you too felt their torment. This is an interesting verse, if you are familiar with Hebrews. uh, There was a unique group of Jews who had been doing sacrifices in all Old Testament uh, rituals to be right with God. And then they learn about Christ, and they give up all those Old Testament rituals, and they come to Jesus, and they begin to live for Him. But then persecution starts. And some of them think it might be better to abandon Christ and go back to those Old Testament sacrifices. And Of course, the book is one big encouragement not to do that. And so, some of them were suffering, others were uh, identifying with those who were suffering, and that's what Hebrews 13.3 means, when it says, remember and identify. It doesn't mean remember and feel bad for them. It says, remember and identify with them. Imagine that you're in prison with them. What's he saying? Imagine, this is what he's saying, imagine that your commitment to Christ would likely have put you in the very same place had you been there. See your own faith as doing the very same thing they would do in the same circumstances. That's what he means by remember those who are in prison as though you were there. The ill treatment as though you were receiving it because you believe the same things that they believe. You're committed to the same Christ that they're committed to. So, Hebrews is about you want to know if your faith is real. I mean, remember the, the faith chapter in the Bible is Hebrews 11 because the writer's trying to tell you, let me show you what real faith looks like. You want to know what real faith looks like? How do I view the suffering of my brothers and sisters around the world? Do I see myself doing the same thing that they would do? Then I would know that my faith is real. That's a powerful statement. Do I understand and identify with the persecution my brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing? Because it says something about my faith, which is what Hebrews is all about. Now, that's what makes the paragraph in Mark chapter 13 in the Olivet Discourse uh, about persecution so critical. Because even though we're not being persecuted at the moment, we'll speak to that in a moment, in no way does that exclude us from the application of what this text is saying. Just the opposite. This passage that we're going to look at today is really a game changer, and it forces us to ask, what's our faith made of? And I'm going to argue that that's exactly what Jesus is getting at. Don't tell me what you believed yesterday or yesteryear. I want to know if it's made of the stuff that lasts. Maybe you've seen this new book out. I think it was a New York Times bestseller, uh, Grit. It's been talked about a little bit now, and people are more people are reading it, and I read it this past week. And uh, it's a great little read. It's really an argument... Uh, um, by Angela Duckworth She's a psychologist And she basically Is studying grit She's saying that Genius and talent Aren't enough to succeed In the world You need grit And she defines grit Very simply But she, I mean There's a whole book She even asks She's got a whole chapter On it that she can, You can take a test Are you gritty? And uh, She defines grit Like this And of course She puts it in all Different other categories I'm only going to put it Spiritually But listen to it From a spiritual perspective She writes Grit, the ability to persevere, and persevering a future goal over a long period of time and not giving up. It's having stamina, sticking with your future day in, day out, not just for the week, not just for the month, but for years. Working really hard to make that future a reality. Grit, she says, living life like it's a marathon and not a sprint. That is exactly what Jesus is saying about Faith. Is your faith gritty? Is it persevering? Do you see it over the long haul? Not just in short little spurts. That's a gritty faith. And I think that's what Jesus is calling us to in this text. Now, the Olivet Discourse, uh, the disciples have asked, when is the end going to come? How will we know when it's here? You know, when will the end of time, when are you going to destroy the temple? When is this all going to happen? And uh, Jesus says, well, more importantly, uh, will you be there? Will you make it to the end? That's his focus. Will you make it to the end? Why does Jesus start where he starts in explaining this? Remember in the text, there's sort of four watch outs over the passage. There's three things to watch out for with four watch outs. One is for deceivers. Watch out for the deceivers. The second one is watch out for persecution. And then the third one is watch for the return of the sun. We're on the second watch out. Watch out for persecution. Now, uh, I gave you a chart that sort of pictures the end. And and, uh, next week, uh, or the next time, we're actually two weeks, we'll go through this chart a little bit more. So for right now, you just have to remember it if you weren't here. Uh, just hang with me. There's two events we see happening in Mark chapter 13. And so uh, there's what happens in AD 70 when the temple gets destroyed and how that's a picture of the end. So, uh, that's what Jesus is saying. There's a near event and a far event. Now, what we were focusing on first, because this is what Jesus says, they're asking, when is this going to happen? That's what they're basically asking. Wait a minute, do I have anything here? No, I don't have a good color there. Let's get a... Let's get a better color. Let's see if that does it. No. Uh let's see. Color. Let's get a better color. How do we get a better color on here? Let's go yellow. Let's try that. Can you see that? Alright. So um so what Jesus does. They want to know about the end. Well, they don't know about this little intermediate thing that's going to happen that's going to look like the end. But in the meantime, Jesus says a lot of things are going to happen before the end happens. And he lists them for him. False messiahs are going to come, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, international unrest, famines, and persecution. So Jesus addresses all of these things. And we said these things sort of characterize the whole age, the whole world. Uh leading up to this event and then past it leading up to this event and will probably intensify toward the end Depending on how you read revelation 6 So that's the picture. This is this is going to happen Now jesus lists all these things they wanted to know when this is going to happen and he's focusing on these things you say why? What's he trying to say and that's our question Well, he tells them in uh verses 7 and 8 when you hear of these things three things don't be alarmed these things must happen there's a little divine necessity word and then the end is still to come so there's your three points about all of these details they are not the end but he says they are the beginning of birth pains we said last week that pregnancy and giving birth is an eschatological picture it describes the end because it describes someone who's hidden who will come, eventually, you know, be manifested. A person will be manifested, but it's going to come through difficulty. That's the birth pains. But these are the beginning of birth pains. So uh, while you and I, the disciples, are in the mindset of, hey, we want to see the baby come now, we want to name it. <laughs> Jesus is saying, hey, it's not time to name the baby. No, we've got a long way for that. So don't panic. So why does he bring up all these things then? Why does he bring these up? Well, two reasons. Number one, and Jesus is warning us and he basically says, there's going to be a delay. You're going to feel some birth pains. They're going to tell you that we're in a season of pregnancy and that something is really happening, but it's a long way off. So the first thing is there's delay. The second thing is there will be difficulty. You will have to be patient because it's going to take a while. And not only is it going to take a while, it's going to be a hard while. That's just the facts, Jesus says. So while you're looking to figure out when the end is going to come, I'm hoping you may get there. Now, to make this point even more significant to Mark as he focuses on this persecution last. Matthew does the same thing. Actually, Matthew and Luke all put persecution at the end right here. Mark spends five verses on it. One whole paragraph on just this last one. All of these get together, combined, less verses than persecution does. Now, here's the interesting thing. Only Luke puts a little temporal marker on this and says, actually, all that persecution is going to happen first. So it's put last so you don't forget it because it's the critical thing that's going to, you know, be the context that Jesus gives his point. But he wants you to know, I mean, Jesus is about to die. Two days from the moment we're we're watching this, Jesus is going to die. And then remember, in the book of Acts... All this persecution starts immediately for the disciples. And the first martyr comes by Acts chapter 7. So within a month of what Jesus is saying to these guys, that persecution is going to begin. It's the first thing. And the fact that it happens first and then it's last tells you it's going to be peppered throughout all of this thing. Did you know that in the 20th century, there have been more Christians persecuted than in all 19 centuries previous? And by the way, the 21st century doesn't look much better. It's only increasing. So yeah, that's intensifying. And we're going to see here in Mark, this paragraph, that it says something very important to us as believers. In fact, I want us to look at the whole paragraph together uh, as one. Because you see the watch out. This is the second watch out within the first thought of Jesus. And it's for persecution. Persecution. So all of the text is on persecution, but there are two lines in it that sort of give us what is what are we supposed to hold on to in the context of this persecution? The first one is first the gospel must be preached to all nations. And the second one is but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So in the context of persecution, there are two things that emerge from the text for us to grab a hold of. Number one is the gospel. What's the nature of this gospel? You're going to see. And then the second thing is, do we, have, do we have the kind of faith that can endure to the end? Because salvation is at the end, if you can endure. So two basic things emerge from this text. One is, there's a mission to accomplish. And second, will you get there? So Jesus takes the disciples' focus who want to go to the end and see it all happen. And puts it where it needs to be, right where we need it. And the first thing I want to say is about the gospel. I want you to see what this text says about the gospel. And there's, here's what I would say. The gospel creates and thrives in opposition and persecution. The gospel creates and thrives. So let's talk about the creation of persecution by the gospel. So we're preaching the gospel, and this gospel is what's getting everyone in trouble. Watch out for yourselves. You will be handed over to the councils and beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings. There's official opposition. Governmental, official, legal opposition. Then you drop down to verse 12 and there's familial, family opposition. Brother will hand over brother. Father is child. Children rise against parents. And then there's universal. You will be hated by everyone. And see, all of this is, the gospel creates that. The gospel creates this opposition. See, once you accept Jesus Christ and what he has done for you and he comes into your life, he affects every area of your life. So it's going to affect every part of you. That's the nature of the gospel. You can't compartmentalize it and say, well, you know, I probably, you know, I might be, you know, subject to opposition up this level, but... You know, I'm not I'm not handing my family over, not turning my family over. There's a limit to what I'll do. No, that's not what the gospel says. That's not the way the gospel works. It takes over you as a person, it dominates every area of your life. And it's divisive, it's supernatural, it's otherworldly. And see, that's why it's opposed to other religions, and other religions hate it. Because there's just nothing like it, it's not a religion. And so other religions hate it. Just Christ is offensive. He said they hated me and they'll hate you. And it's offensive to human pride. Because you don't get saved by what you do. You you get saved by what Jesus did. All the focus is on him. So it's offensive to human pride. It's offensive to other religions. And they want to wipe it out. And that's the nature of the gospel. And Jesus is essentially saying this right from the beginning. I'm telling you, he says, the moment I die on the cross, persecution is going to begin. The gospel will begin and the persecution will come with it. the gospel creates it. The division. And this is Jesus is saying is normal. He's speaking of this as this is what you can expect. Associated with the gospel comes opposition. This is normal. In America, we, we're, we're an anomaly. The Christians around the world, look at us, they, they can't believe that we don't wake up every day. This is the reason, <laughs> I don't know if I should even say this, but. Our problems are so petty. And yet we're the ones depressed all the time, so we're addicted to porn and everything else we got addictions and depressions and all other kinds of things. And that's because you didn't wake up today with a knife at your throat saying you want to give your life to Christ or not. Because you don't have time for naked women. And you don't have time to be depressed when you know you got to get the gospel out there. And you got a knife to your throat. It's all in at every moment. And so we are at a disadvantage for gritty faith. But it's normal around the rest of the world. You wake up every day committed to the mission of getting the gospel out, which it must get out first. Then. That's normal. It's not all all those poor people. Too bad they live over there. Oh, no, no, no. It's just crazy. We don't have it. And I think what Jesus is saying is. Christians, we can expect it. You better expect it. It's starting to happen now a little bit if you're keeping your eye out, it's happening. It's going to get worse. There's maybe not in your lifetime will you have a knife to your throat here, but maybe. And it's not all those poor people over there. It's the gospel attracts the opposition. It can't help it. If it's and in, well we'll get to that in a second. It's normal. Okay, uh, I was reading about a family, because uh, I've read a couple of books. One just came out in a long ago, I am in. I, I recommend it. There's a website and everything you can go to. Uh, um, there's tons of stories and one of them is about these parents, uh, who live in Iran who were explaining to their children that, uh, about the day that they know that their, her, their mom and dad is going to be taken away. They're training their, their, their children. That one day, mom and dad are going to be taken away because we're Christians. And we share our faith because that's what we're supposed to do. But, but, it's, but we do, this is what the mom says to the kids. But it's normal for Christians to be treated that way. So don't worry about it when it happens. You can go on and read the story. It eventually does happen. And her story is amazing. How she handles being taken away from her kids and imprisoned. And her kids accepted it as normal because she taught them that this is just normal. This is what happens. That's normal. For us, it seems outrageous to Jesus and them. It's, it's normal. I read another story. When you think about the families, I know this is sort of mind-boggling, and this is the one that will freak you out the most brother will hand over brother to death father is child children rise against parents i mean this is it's overwhelming to see that kind of thing happening you could see it in revelation too when you read i mean when you read the book of revelation one of the things that ought to stand out to you besides what in the world's going on i'll tell you one of the things that's crystal clear in there lots of people are dying you don't have to you don't need a seminary degree to interpret that one and these people are getting you know that song we sing overcome that comes straight out of Revelation. they overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the testimony of his word and their word. And it's amazing to see. And every one of them are doing it with, sh- with with, bells on. Nobody's going reluctantly. There's no pity in Revelation except for the lost. I'm saying a lot of things I didn't say in the first service. I don't know why. I, I don't know what happened, but a lot of things are coming to my mind. But anyway, listen to this thinking about families <laughs> so this is a nine-year-old girl is walking with her mother they live in pakistan she's walking with her mother and they walk past a church and the mother won't let the little girl look at the church because she says you're you're islamic you're, you're muslim you don't look at that you can't even look at it she hears over the loudspeaker the little girl that jesus is the way the truth and life she hears it over a loudspeaker this nine-year-old girl tucks that away in her head and she's wondering who jesus is And so a few years go by, and she meets a little girl who actually goes to the church. And she has all these questions, and she asks Rachel all these questions. And this little girl's Nadia. And Nadia says, tell me about Jesus. And Nadia gives her life to Christ and then starts sneaking to that little church. Her brother finds her, her own brother, who's Muslim. He beats her. Beyond recognition with a, with a wooden bowl. Locks her in a room for three weeks. Just similar to that little girl you saw on the screen. Because she will not deny Jesus Christ. Just imagine. Little, little girls are enduring this kind of horror. Because they won't deny Christ about after the, toward the end of the three weeks, which would have been longer, except she escapes. She escapes, and guess what she wants? She's just trying to find a church that'll baptize her. Her family's ostracized her. She's been beaten. And all she's looking for is a church that'll baptize her. Three of them deny, him, deny her because they're afraid of what's going to happen to them if they do. She finds a pastor who will do it and actually takes her in. And you can read the rest of her story. It continues on because they hunt her down. She just wants to get baptized. We got people here afraid to be baptized. It's just a completely different mindset. It's just overwhelming. But yeah, that's every day. So the gospel creates opposition. But the second thing is that you've got to see in this text, don't, don't, don't panic yet. It thrives on opposition. Do you notice that in this text? If you're reading it, it thrives on it. Uh, notice what Jesus says. You'll be turned over to councils and you'll be beaten by governors. Look, because of me as a witness to them. You know what Luke inserts right here. And by the way, if this, just this paragraph alone, you ought to read Matthew and Luke's parallel because they're very interesting. They insert little things into Marks. are powerful luke inserts right here it turn. this is how luke would word this it turns out this is a great opportunity to witness that's luke's enthusiasm this is a great opportunity to witness see the gospel won't get to some places unless persecution happens you remember in acts the church started in jerusalem everybody was really happy there's you know all kinds of thousands of them worshiping together, and they all want to stay together. And the gospel's got to get out, remember? Got to get it out, but they, don't, they won't get out. And so what has to happen? God says, I'm going to have to make you hurt a little bit. And then by the time you get to Acts 4, they're already in jail, they're already in prison. And by the time you get to Acts 7, Stephen's martyred. And the, and, and the apostle Paul in chapter 8, verse 1, is breathing down the necks of Christians. And they're scattered all over the world. And they're going, Jesus is up there going, there goes the gospel. And it never stops. After that, by the time you get to the end of Acts, Paul's in prison, you'd think, well, I guess the gospel can't go any further. But the scripture says he preached the gospel to all these people in the prison, which he would have never done. Philippians 1.12 says when the Philippians wrote him and said, hey, we're so sad you're in jail. Verse 12 of chapter one, Paul says in Philippians, hey, my circumstances have fallen out rather for the progress of the gospel. Look at the people I'm winning to Christ in the Roman system. And the best verse in Acts is at the very end. Here's Paul in chains, but the gospel is open and unhindered. The gospel just keeps right on going. It's It's just amazing. The gospel thrives in this opposition. People come to Christ because of it. And sometimes it takes the opposition for the gospel to get to the place it needs to get. In northern Iraq, when I was there, this is sort of a little secret among the Christians there. It's not something you would say out loud because what's happening there is way too horrifying. But if you care about the gospel and the mission, you say, this is like the golden age. What's happening in Syria and the fleeing of the Syrians and what's happening with, with ISIS and what they're Displacing so many people, and all around that area, people are coming to Christ because they're displaced. They're not in their home spot anymore. They're hearing the gospel in ways they never have. They're calling it the golden age. Muslims are coming to Christ because they're seeing what Christians are doing for them in the persecution. The gospel thrives in persecution, it creates it, and then it thrives in it. It's just incredible. read this great story by uh, another fellow in uh, Nigeria. Abdumasi is his name. He was part of a fanatical uh, Islamic group. His favorite thing was to kill Christians. They called him Mr. Insecticide because he referred to Christians as insects. He bombed a church and killed many of these people, and the next day, many of the people who weren't killed were back in the church and they were singing. And he says, he writes, why couldn't I rid these mosquitoes from this church? So what he decided to do was infiltrate the church, act like a believer. And for six years, he attended that church to see what was going on there. Toward the end of that time, a a special speaker comes in. This is all recent hillside. These are not, I'm not talking about 100 years ago. I'm talking about 10 Abdumasi is in this church, and this guy comes in, a special speaker. And he speaks on 1 Kings 18, where Elijah, Elijah looks at the crowd and says, Why, why are you uh, waffling between the two gods, Baal and God? Pick one today. He's sitting in that chair, and God grabs a hold of his heart and converts this persecutor of Christians. Now he's got to go back into his world and figure out how, because he knows he's got to share the gospel with the people that as soon as he opens his mouth, they'll kill him. So he starts sharing the gospel, and pretty soon they're all surrounding him. They can't find him, so they go to his house, and they, what do you think they're going to do? They're going to destroy his family, and that's what they do. And I personally resonated with the fact that i got three kids in college. They walk up to a college where, one of his, where his oldest son is at, and they slit his throat right there. And I just stopped and I waiting to hear what he says, and he says, and this is his way of saying about the hardest thing you could say, it was very difficult. Yeah, I would imagine that's about the simplest way you'd say the most horrifying thing in your life. But then he writes this But there is no sacrifice that is too big for God. This is a man who's just been converted. And then he writes this. You want to know how the gospel thrives in an environment like this? Because let me tell you, what he knows is happening and you can probably feel it. I either now start hating Muslims so much that I'll never ever share the gospel with another one. Or I have to forgive them so that they can hear it. Did you see that dilemma? If I don't forgive these Muslims for killing my family, I'll never get the gospel to them. So here's what he writes. If you want to win Muslims... You gotta love them, not with human type of love, but the love you yourself have experienced through Christ. See, the gospel is so supernatural. Here's the thing that is that I that is so overwhelming. Christianity is not about you. It's not about all what you would do and what you would say, as we'll see. It's God in you doing amazing things. That's why people can be persecuted say, I don't know if I could do it. God could. Through you, he could easily. He's doing it in nine-year-old girls. Eleven-year-old boys I'm reading about. That's God doing it. It's not you. Don't imagine that you have to do anything. God does it. I don't know if I could do that. I know you couldn't. I couldn't. I'm such a baby. (laughs) But God in you can. So the gospel thrives in this. Uh, It thrives because you can't kill it. If you notice, look at all the things that happen in persecution in here. Handed over is used at least three or four times in this text. Uh, You're handed over, you're beaten. Um, Here you go, hand you over again. The reason hand you over is used so many times because Jesus is about to be handed over in chapter 14 uh, whenever we get there. All right. When you... When they arrest and hand them over, they arrest you. Do not worry about what to speak. Whatever's going to give to you, you be speaking. Hand you over. There it is again. Uh, death twice and then hated by everyone. Look at all the things that happened to you. Meanwhile, you're killing the Christians, but the gospel hasn't stopped. It just keeps going. That's the nature of the gospel. It's just supernatural and overwhelming. In this text. All these things. You know, I wrote down in the text after I I was watching this. I just wrote down, the gospel is deadly, but it can't be killed. It's deadly, but it can't be killed. And then here's, you know, uh, look. and this gospel must. There's that divine necessity word. It's got to happen. And I know persecution is going to happen, but persecution is going to be generated by this same gospel and it 's going to thrive in it, and it must be preached to all nations. Matthew adds right here, then the end will come so everybody 's tried to figure out well if we can we can determine when the end comes when we know all nations have been taught the gospel everybody's done that everybody's doing that hey let 's get the gospel out, and then the end'll come let 's hurry and see here's and, and some people believe this happened in the in the days of the gospels actually in in jesus 's day that the, that that, that meant only for the nations in Jesus' day. And then some are saying, oh, we've already done that. Look around the world. We've already been to every nation. Uh, well, here's the facts. The end hasn't come yet, so just keep preaching the gospel. It's not your job to determine when it's over. God will do that. In the meantime, you've got to keep sharing it. Then the end will come. But God's in charge of when that is. My favorite thing about this text, and uh, I'm going to find you. Let's see if I can do it here. Let's see if I can find this verse. Yeah, here it is. You don't see about how powerful the gospel is. Look at this. When they arrest you and hand you over for trial, don't worry. I love that. It's the only time Mark uses don't worry. And it's right here in the context of persecution. Don't worry about what to speak. And here's the other funny thing. Uh, Really, I wasn't worried about what I was going to say. I was worried about what they were going to do to me. <laughs> and so, he, listen, the gospel is so consuming and God is so on this, as you'll see here in just a second, that Jesus is in no way going, you know, hey, this is going to be really hard. I hope you can handle it. Jesus is saying your main concern ought to be what gets said when you get grabbed. And Luke Luke literally adds this because it says, don't worry about what you're going to speak. Say whatever is given to you at that time, for it is not. This is a really important line when it comes to persecution. It's not going to be you doing anything. It's going to be God. He'll be the one speaking through you. The Holy Spirit will guide you in that whole process. That's an amazing. Luke actually says, "Whatever you do this is Luke. Do not rehearse." He says literally, "Be resolved not to rehearse anything you're going to say ahead of time." Like, this is a really important moment. I don't need you screwing it up. I think that's the greatest thing. Because the gospel thrives and I want in these moments of persecution for the Holy Spirit to take over because something great's going to happen. The gospel thrives in persecution. Oh, wow, just awesome. Just so awesome. So God-centered. And then you get this line here, which we just need to look at for a moment. So that's the gospel. It creates opposition and it thrives in opposition. And then you get this last one. The one who endures to the end will be saved. What are we supposed to make of that? Because Jesus is saying, hey, don't worry so much about when it happens. Ask yourself if you'll be there when it happens. <laughs> Will you make it to the end? Whether that's the end of your life or whether that's the end comes and you're there. Either way. Now, let me tell you about what persecution does. Because persecution does two things. Not only is it spread, does it spread the gospel, but it also tests people's faith. It'll test your faith. Just thinking about it here, test your faith. Uh, And what Jesus is saying is real faith, real faith lasts to the end. So here's a a quick picture I want to give you. I want you to understand salvation real fast. Salvation is a sort of a point in time, and then it is a process, and then there is an end to it. And the scriptures see this as one big package. You can't have... You can't have the beginning of salvation and not have the end. Does everybody understand that? If you get the beginning, you get the end too. All right, so it's it's not just about the the faith that you have here lasts all the way to the end. It doesn't give up. It stays in there. Mark's already talked about faith that isn't real in chapter 4, remember? Some faith isn't real. It looks real for a little while, but then it isn't. How do you know it isn't? Well, you know it isn't because you only get this far. You can't get this far and go and bail on it and then go, well, yeah, but I did something really faith over here so that that's not how it works. If it was real here, guess what? It's going to be real here and it's going to be real here and it's going to be real there. Does everybody understand that? You see that? It doesn't stop being real and then you count on what used to be real. That's why I told you last week, what you believe today is far more important than anything you believed 10 years ago. Because what what you believe today will tell you whether or not 10 years ago was real or not. Does everybody understand that? It's very important to understand that because that's what Jesus is saying. Matthew adds that most people's love is going to grow cold right here. They'll, 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 they're not going to make it. Now, let me take you to a text to shorter, sort of prove this to you. So we'll end with Hebrews since we started with Hebrews. These people were suffering. They were thinking about ending their relationship with Christ because of it. And here is what the writer of Hebrews says to them. Keep this picture in mind. But remember the former days. Now persecution's come into their life. They've given up the Old Testament. They've come to Christ. They started to serve him. They were doing well for a little while. Think about our text. They're, they're, they're moving along. They're not at the end yet. But then something bad happens here. And he takes them back to this day for a second. You endured. So you, you endured for a little while harsh conflict of suffering after you were enlightened you know once you understood that Christ was the way to be saved not rituals at times you were publicly exposed to abuse and afflictions and at other times you came to share with others who were treated in that way you helped out the other ones who lost their stuff this is the good stuff you were doing it demonstrated faith in fact you used You shared the sufferings of those in prison, like he says in chapter 13. You accepted the confiscation of your belongings with joy. Because you knew that you certainly had a better and lasting possession. You see? Future. You had something better. That's future language in Hebrews. So here's what I'm trying to say about this. Let me do it before I finish this picture. Let's see, where did that picture go? At some point in your Christian walk, you stop looking back and you start looking forward. And the confidence, the leaning moves you that way. You're not reaching back to go, well, there used to be a time when I used to, I used to, I used to. Oh, no. Now I'm looking forward. My faith is real. It's driving me forward now. You shouldn't have to look backwards and reminisce. You're looking forward to a promise. That's the only way you're going to make it to the end in the difficult times. With the delay and the difficulty. Hey, it's going to take a while. And hey, it's going to be a hard while. You can't be looking back. Watch. Do not throw away your confidence, he writes. Because it has great reward. That's future. For you need endurance. In order to do God's will and receive what was promised. That's future. Oh, watch this. Oh. He, quotes a t- he quotes a text. Watch this. For just a little longer and he who is coming will arrive and not delay. It's going to take some time. He is coming, but there will be a delay and you've got to last. But what's the focus? It's the second coming, just like in the Olivet Discourse. You have to be looking. Why does Jesus start with the stuff that doesn't tell us about the end? Because he's trying to tell you how to get there. And that is you look at the second coming and you endure whatever you have to endure. My righteous. Listen to this verse. It is so critical. My righteous one, that's any of us who know him, will will live by faith. Will. Real faith will last. And notice, will live by faith. Not one day I believed. But he keeps believing. He lives by faith. He doesn't think of faith as something that just happened a long time ago. I used to have faith. When I was 10, I had faith. No, no, no. He lives by faith. That faith is present in him now. And if he shrinks back, I take no pleasure in him. Real faith doesn't shrink. And notice what he says. We are not among those who shrink back. How do you know, Paul? How do you know their faith is gritty? We are not among those who shrink back and thus perish. We are among those who have faith. In other words, not had faith. You hearing that? Have it. In other words, tell me your faith now. Don't tell me what it used to be. It's got to endure. If it was real then, it's real now, and it stays real till the end. That's how faith, real faith works. It endures to the end. I was, uh, one of the first stories that I read was by, if I'll close with this, but was a guy by the Abdu Fadi. Uh, He lived in Mosul, and I was just there not long ago, not far, 30 miles from Mosul. And ISIS came in and attacked. He happened to be out of town. He was a Christian. He had family in town. He had a wife, a mother, and a sister in the city when ISIS attacked. This is not very long ago at all. This is within one or two years. And uh, so they attack. He's out of town, and he's got a wife, a mother, and sister, and two of them are uh, crippled. They need his assistance. They couldn't get out by themselves fast. He has a friend escort them out of town. Everybody was leaving. 40,000 people left. Others were destroyed. The city was bombed. Even the Iraqi army left in fear of ISIS. And... uh, He had a friend get them out and they went to the first checkpoint They put all the belongings, what you can get for four people in a small car. They got to the first checkpoint, pulled him out of the car and wanted to know why he was leaving, what the story was, and he had to admit he was a Christian. They had him get on his knees in front of the car with three people that he loved and who needed him desperately. And he got down on his knees and they began to question him and say, hey, if you don't deny Christ right now, we're going to take your head off. And another soldier unsheathed the sword and just walked around him with it. He said he looked into the car and he saw the three ladies that he loved. And then he looked up to heaven. And at that moment, he said to the folks, to Isis, he said, I cannot deny Jesus Christ. And right before, he said, he closed his eyes and he knew, and he said, right before, I th- what I thought was going to happen was they were going to remove my head. I can't explain it, but I can tell you now, having been there, is that an overwhelming peace came over me that I can't describe. Like This is exactly where I'm supposed to be and exactly how this is supposed to go. I won't go into the whole story, but they're interrupted by another soldier who says, let him go and let him be a... T- let him be a witness to what we're doing here. And he got to go free. But because of that moment, we got, to, we got to hear from him what happens in those moments. And he said, God shows up in a way you can't explain it. Right at that moment when you've let go of everything. Our, our band is going to come out. We're going to just sing a little bit, of course. But I want to read something to you real fast. I was having a quiet time this week, and of course, this text, if it affects you like it affects me, you're just overwhelmed. You're humbled. You don't know what in the world to do with it. And if that's you, I don't know how to help you right now. I really don't. You're going to have to ask God, let God just do something for you. It's overwhelming, very humbling, very uh, introspective. So i I'm, I'm, I got a little uh, uh, book I'm reading Puritans so occasionally in a quiet time I'll just read a page and these Puritans can write like nobody else and they just fill my soul in a way nothing else can well here was uh, one I read this week this is what it says this is John Flavel consider the excellencies of the knowledge of Christ the comforts of believers are streams from this fountain I'm thinking of that little girl on the mat and her name and and holding on to Jesus Christ and it being enough for her. Take away the knowledge of Christ and Christians would be the most sad and melancholy beings in the world. And this was the line that grabbed me. Let Christ but manifest himself and dart the beams of his light into their souls. And it will make them kiss the stake, sing in the flames and shout in the pangs of death. As men that divide the spoil. I read that and I went. That's what it is. And when you read the stories of these people. They love Jesus so much. That it's not. It's not too high a price to pay. For him. I guess that's the question. Matthew says. Love will grow cold. Let me ask you. Is your love growing cold? Because if your love's growing cold. Mark would say. Your faith may be dying. And if your faith dies, that means it was never real. And Jesus is saying, please, before I tell you about the end, please tell me you're ready for the end. All right, why don't you stand to your feet? We're going to just sing a little bit of a chorus. Uh, I didn't get to it, but I have five characteristics of gritty faith that I thought came out of that text. And I'm going to get them to you on social media somehow. It won't be me, because I'm not on social media. But some social media freak back here that we have in our church. Nikki. yeah. These guys will get it out to you. Five characteristics of gritty faith. We'll get that to you. But let's let's sing our way out of here today, all right?